You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we dive into the history of the independent label, Fortune Records. But first, some new music. The sunrise wasn't perfect, but it was close enough to count. The vibrations were impatient, he said he's sick of running out. But first we set the prices, and then we talk about amounts. The sweet parade the morning brings, the drifters wearing angel wings. Distorted hymns they sing So sad the night is over The shepherds started spinning out The cowboys trying to dismount St. Francis with the pigeons on his shoulder That is a little bit of the feelers from the new Hold Steady record, Open Door Policy. The Hold Steady, a, uh, a band out of Brooklyn, originally out of Minneapolis, from the ashes of Lifter Puller an indie band from uh, the late 90s, early 2000s that uh, featured Craig Finn, the vocalist, and Tad Kubler, the guitarist. They formed The Hold Steady soon after. This band has been putting out records since 2004. The debut album almost killed me. The breakthrough was uh, Boys and Girls in America in 2006, their third studio album. Been going strong ever since. A key uh, member of this band, off and on through the years, has been keyboardist and multi-instrumentalist uh, Franz Nicolay. He departed the band in uh, 2010 and returned six years later. So basically a reconstituted version of the Hold Steady uh, has been working the last few years. Craig Finn had been putting out some solo records in that uh, period of time, but came back strong, the Hold Steady did, in 2019 with Thrashing Through the Passion. Let's play a track from the uh, eighth studio album from the Hold Steady, Open Door Policy. It's called Unpleasant Breakfast from the Hold Steady on Sound Opinions. All your stuff in the storage shed Twisted sheets on the trundle bed And the antipsychosis meds Made you feel all marooned Last summer at the shore When I was working cleaning carpets At some hotel that was haunted By some sailor who supposedly was murdered After losing all his treasure in the harbor That's back when I found romance in these ghosts I was honestly more bothered By the hundred miles of hallways Than the clanking of the shackles Or the shadows in the doorway And we snuck into the ballroom And made echoes in its empty On you, and we both just started laughing. Unpleasant breakfast by the hold steady from open door policy. I don't know about you, Greg. Well, I suspect you're a bigger fan of this band than I am. Those woo woos, <laughs> they drive me crazy. 
They're driving me nuts, man. Um, and as does uh, Craig Finn's vocals. We had him on the show. We had the Hold Steady play live in the studio, uh, episode 165, back in 2009. And I told Craig to his face, you know, there are things I admire. Uh, I, I enjoy you guys live, but I find your records painful. And I have to say, when you pose the question, how is this Open Door Policy, the eighth Hold Steady studio album, and four uh, Craig Finn solo albums total. How is this album different than any of the others? Well, um, they got a horn section, Stuart Bosey and Jordan McLean uh, from Auntie Ballas, a fantastic group. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about the only thing that's different. <laughs> you know? Some uh, super fans are parsing that uh, Finn's solo albums are a little more laid back, a little more low key, and the Hold Steady operates on those big guitar riffs. And there's a little bit of solo Finn in uh, a little more air on this record. Not that the guitar riffs aren't there. What else is new about this record? Um, at one point at the bar, he orders a uh, vanilla vodka and Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> that sounds pretty good to me. I hadn't heard of that before. Uh, and otherwise, I, you know, the obstacle, Greg, is the sing-speak style. Wanting to be Jack Kerouac, but sort of landing as a sub are Tom Waits or Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and as you know, I'm not a fan uh, much of either. It kills me. That song, Hanover Camera, the party with a python in the shower, <laughs> Heather with the Hannah on her hands. On her hands. Once we started mixing it with sodium bicarbonate, we got backstage and hung out with the band. I mean, come on. If you look around Brooklyn 2021, there are no sailors at the end of the bar telling stories and singing sea shanties. You know, <laughs> where, where, where does this guy live? It's a literary world of his own creation that was a cliché. You know, when Charles Bukowski wrote about it. And I just have a really hard time with the constant stories. You know, the woman who had a problem. She didn't tell me she was married. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Live, you get swept up in the excitement of the band. On album, I just find this torturous and a shtick that I cannot abide. Well, that's an interesting uh, assessment. I mean, the shtick part, he's making film noir movies. He's making Pulp Fiction short stories. I mean, that what you find as a, like offensive wordplay, I think is kind of is funny. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a, a gift for detail that I really appreciate. Sometimes it can get a little purpley, but it's almost like he's saying some of this stuff tongue-in-cheek. It's just so much fun, which I like. I also think that the touches on this record, Nikolai has been a glad—I'm glad to see him get back in the band because I think he brought a sense of arrangement to the band's compositions that, you know, weren't there when he was gone. That song in particular, Unpleasant Breakfast, I really love that song. I think what it's great. I love the wordless. I love the way it's kind of used as a rhythmic device on that song. I love the counterpoint horns. You know, the sing-speak vocals, um, they're balanced by the melodies that the horn lines are playing or the wordless vocals are playing in that song so that you get a sense that the hooks that you didn't know were there, they sort of accent them a little bit more now with, with these more uh, elaborate orchestrations. Not every song works as well as that one. I'll say. But there's a few songs on here. The Feelers, I thought, was a great introduction to the record. There's a, a, a richness there 
sonically that they haven't had in a while. Uh, certainly not since Friends Nicolay's first incarnation mm-hmm. in the band. So I think he's been a key addition uh, back into the band. And I, from that reason, I think this is a one of the better Hold Steady albums of the last 10 years. Yeah, I'm glad I got my vodka. That, Mr. Cott, is a little bit of the track one, or O-N-E, because there's periods after each letter in that song, uh, by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard from uh, that group's amazing 17th album, L.W. You know, I got to say, I I, I think you might be resenting me a little bit. I know you groaned. We don't like to tip our our hands uh, before we uh, record our reviews. You groaned when I said, it is time on Sound Opinions to deal, Mr. Cott, with King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Formed in 2011 in Melbourne, Australia. If you uh, do the math, 17 albums since then, plus uh, innumerable EPs and and all sorts of stuff on the web of their live shows. You know, I got to say, in the last couple of years, uh, after requests that we do a King Crimson show and a, a Frank Zappa show, you know, diehard fans, loyal fan bases. How come you guys have never, you know, you've done almost 800 episodes of Sound Opinions. You've never dealt with King Gizzard. Um, and I, you know, and, and often from young clued in people, some in them in my classes. So, you know, Greg in 2020, they put out a record called KG for King Gizzard. This is the sister album, they're saying, LW, Lizard mm. Wizard. I'm amazed I can even say all those words. Uh, I'm trying. I'm a true professional for the radio, people. Mm. What is King Gizzard giving us different on LW? Let's play a song. We'll come back. We'll give our reviews. This is the track Plura by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard from LW. from the new King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard album, LW. Plura, I looked that up, Jim. I wasn't sure exactly what it meant. Mm-hmm. It's the lining around the lungs, right? Ah. The mucus lining. And, and uh, you know, the, it's, it's protective, right? And it's breaking down. It's basically a metaphor for the state of our planet. These, yeah, well, uh, what does it have to do with the necromancer <laughs> they talk about in the lyrics? Well, there's a sign... You know, I don't... You're asking me to parse... <laughs> King Gizzard and the Wizard (laughs) Wizard Lizard Lizard Wizard lyrics. I'm the wrong guy for that job. The reason I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit is that there's so much of this band out there, and it you know I have listened to them before, 
uh, a number of times. And the records are so up and down for me. And stylistically, it is all over the map. All you over the map. You think you know what they sound like based on one record. You're going to be wrong because they got 16 other records that sound very different from that no, one. No, you know, there's jazz rock, semi-acoustic ballads, hard-hitting garage rock. Uh, there was a death metal concept album. You know, in, in 2017, they did five albums alone. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, this the Pluritrek that we just played uh, it's kind of an Eastern-sounding metal song, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, you know there's all sorts of they they, they talk about uh, exploring microtonal settings, on, yes. you know, non-Western settings, you know, in in terms of the the musical motifs that they're pursuing it here. There is sort of a droney kind of quality to a lot of this music. It the tracks meld together intentionally. I have to say that I kind of got sucked into this record in a good way. I yes. kind of enjoyed it. Yes. Uh, even though it's sort of all over the map, they were able to sort of pull together these different influences and this, all this genre hopscotching they're doing into something that sort of flows. And again, the lyrics, you may think they're just a bunch of jamming hippies out there in, in Melbourne, but their lyrics do say something. They are addressing yeah. some serious uh, sociological and cultural issues. You know, look, it's key to the Gizverse. Mm -hmm. You have to learn the lingo, brother. The Gizverse, uh, that that all of these uh, songs are circular and they tie into one another. And they've done some cheesy things. There was one EP where it had four tracks, every one of them exactly 10 minutes and 10 seconds long, right? But they essentially claim they are doing one long song that is tied thematically about environmentalism and uh, the inaction of us. We are not moving in a timely fashion to save the world. Um, you know, I don't know if I buy that. I don't know what the necromancer has to do with that. <laughs> and thankfully, the vocals are often buried in the mix. They're yeah. just another texture, just like the world beat percussion. Um, you know, I, I resisted this band for many reasons. Number one, uh, you know, it was invariably my stoner students who said, dude, man, you've got to <laughs> tune in to King Gizzard, you know? And uh, I have an aversion, a knee-jerk aversion to jam music, you know? I want my psychedelic rock to continue rocking. Um, there was that. There was the Where Do You Enter. I think I listened to that Quarters EP with the four 10-minute, ten 10-second tracks and thought, oh, this, this is shtick. Um, you know, but, but I thought it was time for us to deal here on Sound Opinions, us being serious critics with our fingers on the pulse. I got to say, I'm becoming a, a not a full-fledged uh, member of the Gizverse, but this album turned me around. The, the multi-polyrhythmic uh, percussive approach of this record is pretty great. When they turn up the rock and really rock out, you know, there's, there's kind of two modes. If we were to generalize all those styles of King Gizzard, um, at their best, they are like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band doing East-West, mm. the first great Western track to mix rock and blues with Indian tonalities and, and rhythms, um, or, or Krautrock. I'm on Duel 2. Yeah. I think there's a lot of... At their worst, they're bad Zappa. 
<laughs> and and it's it, it's mind boggling. Seventeen albums. That's that's you know eighty seven years worth of music at their track length. It that's really off putting. But I would say you know if you've never um, got into the Giz verse, uh, LW is not a bad place to start. Some lively reviews there on King Gizzard and the Hold Steady. Uh, we want to hear from you now, our listeners. What do you think of the new albums from these two bands? And uh, leave us a voice message on soundopinions.org to let us know what you think. Coming up, we're going to review the new record from singer-songwriter Julian Baker. We'll also discuss the independent record label Fortune Records. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. That's Julian Baker. That's song in E from her new album, Little Oblivions, the third studio album from this artist. Julian uh, was in a uh, high school band in Tennessee, uh, started making intimate uh, bedroom records while she was in college, and then put them out, got them distributed on Bandcamp. Things exploded from there. Manador Records mm-hmm. took notice and signed her as a teenager. In uh, 2015, that debut album got a ton of notice, Sprained Ankle, it was called. Kind of a stripped-down record. Uh, Self-produced the follow-up at uh, famed Ardent Studios in Memphis. It was called Turn Out the Lights. Little Fuller on the production side. More acclaim followed. Then uh, teaming up with Lucy Dacus and Phoebe Bridgers in uh, a band called Boy Genius in 2018. super group. Talk about timing. Those three artists put out incredible records right around the same time, mm-hmm. and they happened to be mutual fans, got together and did this, uh, I think it was like a six-song EP, if I'm not mistaken, and it was terrific, a terrific record, and uh, people loved it. They went out on tour, uh, and now Baker is back with her third record called Little Oblivions. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's called Hard Line from Julian Baker, Little Oblivions on Sound Opinions. Black out on a weekday Is there something that I'm trying to avoid? Start asking for forgiveness in advance All the future things I will destroy That is Hardline from Julian Baker's third album, Little Oblivions. Would you hit me this hard if I was a boy? 
uh, Julian asks. Um, Greg, in, in your introduction to this artist, um, you know, she is uh, a recovering substance abuser. She is a recovering mm-hmm. Christian. Uh, she is, uh, uh, you know, talking about both and more uh, on this album. It could well uh, have the title Losing My Religion if we uh, if it hadn't already been taken by R.E.M. And, and finally, she is gay. Uh, so talking about... Uh, struggling to balance all of those things. Would you hit me this hard if I was a boy? Uh, that could be about relationships. That could be about uh, the substances hitting her, uh, the scorn from a conservative religious community about her sexuality. You know, elsewhere she sings, uh, I wish you'd hurt me. It's the mercy I can't take. Mm-hmm. Your Your pity, your derision, I don't need it. Um, you know, lyrically, it is truly uh, what she promised uh, to her fans, unflinching autobiography, her most personal record, she said this would be. And I think that her time with Boy Genius and also contributing to Phoebe Bridger's last album, where she is a multi-instrumentalist, really fleshing out the sound of that supergroup and helping Phoebe realize her sound. On this record, Little Oblivion, she played almost all of the instruments herself. It is her lushest, uh, most dramatic record. It is musically extraordinary. It is lyrically extraordinary. I mean, just uh, an unbelievable talent uh, at the age of 25. Yeah, she's an amazing artist. Uh, it's interesting. Bridgers and Dacus uh, appeared with her on one track from this record, Favor, which uh, you know is just one of many outstanding tracks on this record. She is totally a self-contained entity. I mean, she can do it all. She's writing, producing, singing. I mean, everything. She's yeah. doing everything in the studio that you could possibly do, playing all these instruments, making it sound like a full band record with orchestration. Um, so the sound slowly but surely in, over those three records, each one fuller than the previous one. She's made some beautiful music here, and at the same time, these these uh, lyrics are absolutely harrowing. It's just like yes. you're going through hell. So it's almost like the, the sugar on top is a way of sort of cushioning the blow that she's delivering these very direct lyrics. One thing about Julian uh, Baker, she does not talk, she's not a metaphorical artist or a symbolic artist. Uh, she is very direct about what she's been going through. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a form of meditation almost. People are saying, well, why is she, why is she singing about this? Um, you know, she's talking about blackouts, emotional distance, self-recrimination, self-loathing. Um, you know, that line that you said, I wish you'd hurt me because, I, yeah. uh, you know, it's the mercy I can't take. That just well, hit me like a hard ton line, of bricks. Hardline is a song about relapsing yeah. on yeah. the path towards sobriety. And I think what she's doing here is if you sing about this, you can purge it. I'm trying to heal myself. I'm not trying to make you wallow in my pain. 
I don't want to wallow in my pain anymore. It's I've heard as, a lot of people, you know? As old as the, the field hollers where yeah. blues came from. Right. It, is, it is, I'm not wallowing in misery, I'm finding catharsis. Yeah. And that, that mix between the beautiful sounds and the, the harrowing lyrics is just, you know, very powerful. Yeah, it's a, there's a redemptive quality in the music, which I think is, uh, is what makes it so worthwhile. Uh, you could listen just to the music and hear a, a, a singer pouring her heart out over, over these wonderful arrangements, and you'd think, hey, this is a nice-sounding record. And then you pay attention more closely, and you realize, no, it's, you know, there's a lot more to it than just the sound. There's, there's also this person pouring their heart out in a way. That, you know, she's been confessional, quote-unquote, in past records, but never to this degree. That is a little bit of the song awkwardly titled If Oh I Could Be With You Tonight by Nolan Strong and the Diablos, one of the musical acts on Fortune Records' roster. This week we are diving deep into a conversation about that independent family-owned and operated label, Fortune, active from 1946 to 1995 with a unique range of music, including doo-wop, soul, the blues, and rockabilly, and that's just naming a few. The music, which uh, was energetic and unpredictable, influenced artists like Smokey Robinson and Lou Reed, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the label's history and cast of colorful characters with author Michael Hurt. Now, Michael co-wrote the book Mind Over Matter, The Myths and Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records with the late Billy Miller. Michael, welcome to Sound Opinions. Glad to be here, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor. This uh, book, 576 pages, deluxe hardcover, (laughs) full color, obviously a labor of love, more than a decade in the making, co-author, along with Billy Miller of the great Kicks fanzine and rock archivist, historian, didn't live to see the publication, it's so sad to say. Why a book? Why such a loving, incredible, lavish book about this label from Detroit that almost no one's heard of? Billy and I became friends starting when I was about 19 years old, and I was in Wax Tracks Records and saw Kicks Magazine with the Rivieras on the cover (laughs) of California Sun fame, who were from my hometown, and I just that just blew my mind because I loved those guys. So, you know, I became friends with pen pals at the time with Billy and his wife Miriam, who was his co-conspirator in Kicks and Norton Records later on. One of the things that we always talked about was Fortune Records, just how fascinating this label was because these records were so atmospheric and so unique and humorous and and yet also ethereal and otherworldly. There was just something that just touched on every emotion uh, with the Fortune label and the records that they put out. And so finally, we had both been in our madness, essentially trying to track down anybody involved with the label and any artists. Back then, we would just call, you know, I I learned from Billy and Miriam, you just call your heroes up and, you know, try to get the story on the record that you love so much and then figure out what you're going to do with it later. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. both of us had been sort of preparing (laughs) unknowingly, finally, in 
2009, Miriam basically told us, you guys have been talking about, joking about doing a book. <laughs> Time to do it. <laughs> you guys need to do this. And then that that week, Billy Billy emailed me, and, it, and that started everything, you know. You know, you, um, you did a great job of documenting this label, and, um, you know, it made me think that Fortune was one of many of these uh, great regional labels that sort of mushroomed out after World War II ended. You had them all over the country. Every scene had, had some kind of version of Fortune Records. Some got extremely successful. Others were more regionally confined and were more like connoisseurs labels. And Fortune seems to fall into the latter category. But it seemed like everybody was making it up as they went along. They had no idea really what they were doing. They were just sort of following their heart, right? That was kind of the whole motivation. That's a perfect assessment of what was going on. And, and I think that that's probably, that really gets to the heart of why we love these kinds of records so much and this kind of music. It was, there was such a sense of adventure and just not knowing where it was going and more a sense of the journey rather than what the finished product might become. The finished product could become, you know, take a guy like Andre Williams and a song like Bacon Fab. While I was down in uh, Tennessee, all my friends was uh, glad to see me Seen some down by the railroad track Seen some cotton pickers with their sacks on their backs They say, hey man, we're glad to see you back We got a new dance they call uh, Bacon Fat It goes what, what was he? What, I mean, sure, he had a vision as Devorah Brown, Fortune's owner, so succinctly put it. But did he exact? Did he really know how it was going to end up by the time it, you know, hit mm -hmm. the jukeboxes? And then the reaction people would have. So, you're absolutely right. Um, it was the, that era post post World War II um, was incredible as far as I mean. Obviously, it be it begat rock and roll. Mm -hmm. These all these all these independent labels that started just right after World War II ended, and Fortune was one of them. They started in 1946. It was a, it was a really amazing time for music. Genre didn't matter, right? As long as it had a spark and preferably some distortion, they liked their noise at Fortune Records. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which means I love them. Uh, we got characters here, you know, a mad Russian record distributor, <laughs> cross-dressing uh, record store clerks, uh, gangsters, teenagers. Tell us about the founders of Fortune Records. Jack and Devorah Brown were a Jewish couple. Jack had been an accountant by trade, and they met, by all accounts, in Detroit, from what we can tell. Devorah was from Belarus originally, and her family was from Cleveland. They met at a dance up here in the Motor City in the 30s and got married. And Devorah was just a, she was, she was somewhat of a poet, but also a, an aspiring songwriter. And she loved her lyrics, but they were such eccentric people and they were such loving people and so community-minded and so aware of what was going on around them that here they were in Detroit, in the inner city, right across from Central High School, where all these kids from all these different parts of the country whose parents had moved up for the auto industry were attending school and coming into the record shop after school. And that's how they met Nolan Strong and the Diablos. But they were, they were aware enough to be interested, and I think as outsiders, to all this different music that they recorded, 
hillbilly, blues, jazz, R&B and doo-wop, um, soul music, gypsy music. I think the outsider factor was what helped them actually record something that was so interesting because they didn't have a template for what a rockabilly record, say, was supposed to sound like or what a doo-wop yeah. record was supposed yeah. to sound like. They were coming at it from a completely unique direction in that there was no vision of a finished product in exactly what it needed to be. Well, and, and they must have been incredibly tolerant of just the raunch in some of these <laughs> records. You know, didn't bother them, you yeah. know. Not at all. And they were also pioneers of what back in the day they would call would have called party records which were essentially adult themed records uh sometimes musical and sometimes comedy but 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 in their case mostly mostly if not all musical uh and so you had songs like you know the dirty boogie by roy hall down in atlanta on decatur street they got a few dates and they can't be beat oh they call it the dirty boogie Lady by Skeets McDonald. <laughs> Up on her leg was Minnesota. On her shoulder, Tennessee. And tattooed on her back was good old Rackham Sack. A place where I long to be. <laughs> and you know the list goes on and on, and then and that goes also over into the blues genre with drunk right. drivers coming right. by the Richard Brothers and and Andre Williams with Jail Bait. No, so, you really get a sense in the book that uh, these would be a, a, a heck of a couple to sit down and have a couple of drinks with. <laughs> they were very unique people, and and extremely. You know, again, the word eccentric comes to mind in the best possible way. They were so, but they were also very driven. And just very individualistic. You know, one thing that has always struck me about Fortune, and, and even more so as we dug into the story, was, you know, how many women were involved in prominent, I mean, starting with Devorah Brown, mm-hmm. who basically produced almost, you know, almost all the sessions and really ran the show from what everybody always, mm. every, every artist always made sure to say, well, Jack... You know, Jack was there. Jack did everything she said, but Devorah ran the show. It was mm, her deal. And there were so many women at the forefront of Fortune, starting with Joyce Songer, who is an incredible, you know, proto-rockabilly, hillbilly, electric lead guitar player um, with her husband, Earl, and then later with uh, her friend Rufus Schaffner. And they made these fantastic records that were, you know, almost rock and roll, but not quite because mm. rock and roll hadn't quote-unquote happened yet. It always happens to me, it doesn't always happen to me. Coltrane's first appearance on Wax was with the jazz cocktail doo-wop group, the premieres on a song called Trap of Love. Look where, over there, Jack, that's the trap of love. Kenny Burrell's first records were released on Fortune. Donald Byrd's first appearance on Wax was on the label. John Lee Hooker recorded his you know, the first recording studio he ever went into was he was taken there by Jack Brown. Uh, so yeah. it's it's incredible how many p- 
pie, you know, how many people that later later became so iconic mm-hmm. crossed that threshold first. Coming up, we continue our conversation with author Michael Hurt on Fortune Records. Plus, Jim is going to take a trip to the desert island, play a record he cannot live without. Jim, what do you got for us? Just a little hint, Greg. I have a great song about a huge hero in black history, activism. I was shocked there weren't more songs about this giant. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And this week, we're exploring the music of the independent label Fortune Records. While Fortune released lots of fascinating music, it never had many big hits like other boutique labels. But they were able to sustain the business for almost 50 years, from 1946 to 1995. I asked the author of the book on Fortune Records, Michael Hurt, if he could explain how they continued to survive. Yeah, I think that in some ways... I almost think that that actually helped them. Andre Williams told us that he was, at the time of Bacon Fat, which was a huge hit and and sold to Epic in 1956 and brought him to the Apollo Theater and, and just, you know, everywhere, all over the place. He, he said he was actually, at the time, angry that he wasn't able to, he felt he was being held back by the label. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't release him. Epic, if Epic wanted to sign sign him, that was going to be a no-go, and he knew it. But in retrospect, he said, thank God it didn't happen because it would have killed me. I'd have been dead for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that the same thing sort of goes for record labels because back then, a small record label would get a hit, and the distributors, of course, never want to pay you until you have something to follow it up with that's just as big. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have that follow-up record then you just don't get paid and then you go out of business. And Fortune never really, you know, people always always referred to them as being paranoid in their business practices because they wouldn't really license their records. They didn't want to sell anything. They really were thinking that they could do it all themselves. But I think in retrospect, I think that that, that was a very wise way to approach things and probably mm. kept them around a lot longer than they would have been because any of these independent labels that um, we talk about from post-World War II, very few of them had that had the same kind of staying power that Fortune did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Punk rock before their time. DIY, keep it in the yeah. family, in-house. It has Absolutely. Been said, <laughs> it has been said, uh, Michael, and I don't know if you agree or not, that in some ways, uh, in many ways, except for the part about making lots of money, uh, Fortune Records paves the way for its bigger, more famous, uh, more lauded Detroit neighbor, Motown. I agree. I do agree with that, that assessment, especially because so many people that would record at Motown later and became well-known there were so influenced and so aware and such a part of the world of Fortune Records. They were in that studio recording. They were they were doing, you know, experimenting with stuff. They were in other groups, um, that earlier groups that recorded records for Fortune. And Barry Gordy knew the Browns very well, and, and I think he definitely looked at them as a business model in some ways maybe of not what to do. Yeah, there's no grooming but, school at Fortune. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> however, he however they, they you know, it's it's always if you talk to any Detroit insider from back in the day, they'll they'll tell you that that Fortune just cannot be discounted as a force. And a big part of the a big part of that was the Browns personalities, the friendliness and the welcoming 
mm. attitude that they had towards everybody. But also it was that that they were so driven. You know, it's interesting, the influence it had on, on a lot of rock and rollers who came after, didn't record for the label, would just love the, the sound. They found those records and they were blown away. You know, I, I interviewed Lou Reed a bunch of times. You, I think there's a quote you have from him on, in the press release about something to the effect of, I could actually sing, I'd want to sound like Nolan Strong. And you could always break the ice with Lou by talking about soul records and doo-wop records from the 50s and early 60s. And Nolan Strong was one of those. I knew, had no idea who Nolan Strong was until Lou Reed mentioned him. You just nod when yeah, Lou did and, that. And then yeah. you go back and you listen to those <laughs> records and go, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why this guy loved this singer so much. And Nolan Strong never gets his props out. I mean, people don't know that guy at all unless somebody like Lou Reed mentions him. What, right. What's the deal there? What happened with him? Because he's just an extraordinary talent. Very good question. You know, another person that, that absolutely unequivocally in every single interview I've ever heard him do, you know, Smokey Robinson. The first question is always like, tell us about your influences. You know, it's always, you know, Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson. And there was this guy from Detroit named Nolan Strong. He always goes out of his way. Yeah. To point that out and explain who this guy was. Now, I think that show business and the entertainment world is such a steep climb for a sensitive person like Nolan Strong, which by all accounts he was. And in some ways, he, he was very shy, didn't really want to be, he wasn't into it for the fame or the fortune, I'm yeah. sure. He was probably into it for the women to a certain extent, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like so many, so many yeah. people, you know, or whatever. But you don't find many instances of the Diablos, his group, uh, performing live. You know, mm -hmm. they, they performed live quite a bit in the 50s and a little bit locally in the 60s. But one of the myths that we were able to debunk about Fortune was that their downward slide could be directly related to a gig that no one just mysteriously didn't show up for hmm. uh, a really big, big gig here in Detroit in the wake of his hit Mind Over Matter. Nolan, and I think the reason he didn't show up, is a testament more to the idea that this guy didn't know how to deal with fame, didn't know how to deal with that kind yeah. of adulation. He just wanted to sing. And I think, you know, it's it's almost like you've got 10% of, quote unquote, making it in the entertainment business is the talent. And then you've got to have all this business acumen and drive and, and all this other stuff that maybe, yeah. these, maybe a lot of these people don't have. And I think mm -hmm, he was yeah. one of them, unfortunately. Making music is just not enough. <laughs> Nor is it just enough to have a great name. Tell me about Shorty Frog and the Spacemen. <laughs> that may be my new favorite band name of all time. Shorty Frog and the Space Cats, actually. Oh, Space Cats. I'm sorry. Oh, my, my, my apologies. Which is actually cooler. You told me you were leaving. 
the guy's name was uh, uh, Shorty Frog Allen, and he was a bass player that had played on a few other Fortune records earlier. And then he made his own record in the late 50s, which to me is just the absolute sound of Third Avenue. Mm-hmm. Fortune was located on Third Avenue, which is in the heart of the Cass Corridor, which if you know anything about Detroit, that was oh, yeah. a very legendary and notorious. I mean, it was basically Skid Row. Yeah. Um, and we tell the story in the book about and how And then things, they... things get even worse after the riots. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was really a, a very poor Appalachian white hillbilly neighborhood, in a sense, even though all kinds of people live there. And so there were all these hillbilly bars right up and down 3rd Avenue with all these bands playing. And Shorty Frog's band was one of them. Right across mm. the street at the Calumet Bar, they, that's where they... They held forth on a nightly basis in the late 50s, and and probably that's why they ended up recording. They probably went across the street and, let's, let's cut a record. You know? <laughs> now you can get back to drinking. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking to Michael Hurt about Mind Over Matter, the myths and mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records. Michael, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Oh, man, it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you guys so much. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, you are warming up the jet skis as we speak to get out to the island. What are you going to play for us? Well, I got a preamble, Greg. Uh, I saw the fantastic film recently, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, I I said fantastic. It is a gripping movie, uh, the story of Fred Hampton, the chair of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in late 1960s Chicago. Uh, What a fascinating figure and how he was betrayed uh, uh, by the hands of an FBI mole, uh, William O'Neill. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the film has a few problems in that it focuses on the killing of, of Fred Hampton. It's more about mm. his death at the hands of Chicago police as he slept in his bed, uh, an assassination, really, uh, versus uh, his life. But it does accurately depict the complexities of the Black Panthers. Yes, they wore black berets and carried guns and were ready to uh, protect themselves by any means necessary, as Malcolm X said. But the soup kitchens they established, the uh, health care clinics, the kindergartens, the food pantries, the true community activism in Chicago, in, in the uh, south and west side where nobody else was doing that sort of thing, um, a really historic legacy and especially relevant in the times of Black Lives Matter. So Jim says, oh my God, I'm so inspired by this movie. There have got to be a million great hip-hop songs about Fred Hampton. Mm. None are coming to mind, right? Well, three hours later, (laughs) on the Google machine, there is one great song. The greats in Chicago hip-hop superstardom of the 90s, right? Common and Kanye West and Lupe Fiasco and Rhymefest all had 
relatives, parents, or very close people to them who were Black Panthers running those soup kitchens, those kindergartens. There's a deep connection in Chicago uh, hip-hop history between um, the hip-hop generation Mm. and their elders who were doing this work in the community. So Common uh, got together with Dead Prez and uh, The Last Poets to create a track uh, in 2006 uh, that that was only uh, heard on the television series The Boondocks. Mm -hmm. Aaron Magruder, the brilliant black comic artist's uh, uh, animated series uh, for a while, and then it it popped up on something called Hip Hop Doctrine, the official Boondocks mixtape. But this song I'm going to play, uh, again, uh, it's it's a triple-headed collaboration. Last Poets, Dead Prez, and Common, uh, I think, does the Panthers' legacy uh, proud. And it's the only song I know. I'd love to hear from listeners who want to point out others. Uh, it's called Panthers, and uh, part of the lyrics go, Being exposed to the Panther Code made me a soldier, a child of the ten-point platform and rap form. Mm -hmm. Word to this UEP, UEP Newton, tatted on my left arm. It's for life, because if it wasn't for the Panthers, the real OGs like Akua and Fred Hampton, I wouldn't be here, basically, is what they're singing. Akua is formerly named uh, Deborah Johnson, Fred Hampton's fiancé at the time when police uh, killed him. A great song. It does the Panther legacy proud. Why there isn't, uh, you know, a hundred. Fred Hampton tributes in hip-hop, I don't know. But here are uh, Les Poets Dead Present Common with Panthers. With a clan that was militant Preparing for war, we studied strategies with diligence. The revolution was our real intent. We had to put our theory to work so we could find out what it really meant. Then I was sent to Chicago, Illinois the place where the most black Panthers were destroyed. You either push dope lines down the unemployed hearing shots late at night keep the people paranoid have you ever read season time i read it when i was 16 and it freed my mind coming up on them dirty south florida roads being exposed to the panther code make me a soldier a child of the 10 point platform and rap form word to the suey tatted on my left arm it's for life because if it wasn't for the panthers the real ogs like a cool fred hampton and comrades on the west coast side of watts east coast bla returning shots and cops there wouldn't be no Free school lunches. It was Matula Shakur that gave us acupuncture to cure the junkies. Black vests, Akos, Koopies, and black gloves. Five point programs, rifles, and black love. Panthers holding it tight like black hugs. All the black ears we call them with black rugs. Black fists, Akos, Koopies, and black gloves. Five point programs, rifles, and black love. Panthers, Panthers holding, it, holding it tight like black hugs. All the black ears we call them with black rugs. It's the Panthers. The Panthers yawning, the rhythm and blues, conservative smiles on the five o'clock news. Here comes Bush. That is a little bit of Panthers by the last poets, Dead Prez and Common, about the Black Panther Party and uh, in particular Fred Hampton. To hear more of our entries in the Desert Island Jukebox, you can check out our podcast feed for a bunch of bonus episodes, one per week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we know that uh, popular music is populated with disgraceful, shady characters, and we're going to play some great songs that do just that. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our Columbia College intern, Sol Delgadillo. Black love, Panthers holding it tight like black hugs. All the black ears, we call them with black rugs, black